Open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Well, there was a young freshman in high school at a public school, and he was on his way home. He saw another young man that was walking in front of him. This young man had a stack of books that he was carrying. His name was Kyle. And as Kyle was carrying these books on his way home, he was uh, maybe looked a little nerdy, had some glasses on, kind of smarter than most of the kids, hadn't been at the school very long. In fact, this was his first time to be in a public school. On his way home, he had some boys that came up to him and pushed him to the ground, threw his books on the ground, and his glasses went flying, and, and Kyle was very embarrassed. In fact, as he kneeled on the ground there and started to gather his books up and search for his glasses, he started to cry. This young man that was falling behind him saw what was happening to Kyle, and he ran up to him, and he started to help him pick his books up. He said, oh, don't worry about it, man. Don't, don't worry about it. Those guys are just not, not very nice, trying to encourage Kyle there. And Kyle looked at this young man with, with genuine thankfulness and said, thank you. And he helped, he helped Kyle pick up his books, and Kyle went home. And the next day at school, uh, this young man came with the same stack of books into school, and and Kyle did. And this young man came up to Kyle and said, hey, let me help you with those books. He said, why are you carrying so many books? You know, you must be a really smart guy. And he started to befriend Kyle. And this young man was more of an athlete. He was a football player, and Kyle was kind of the top A student in the class, 4.0 kind of kid. And as they went through school, they became best friends. And at graduation, uh, one, I think uh, the young man was going to go to Duke University, and the other one was going to go to Georgetown, and Kyle was going to be a doctor, and the other one was going to get a scholarship to play football. And at graduation, the, Kyle was able to be the valedictorian, so he got to speak, and he started speaking up there, and his friend was in the front row down there, and he said, when I was a freshman, I came to the school, and I was really sad and depressed and put my books together in my locker to go home to end my life. But someone came up when I was bullied and befriended me. And it changed my life. You know, Kyle experienced the power of influence. One life touching another life in a positive way. We're going to look at a man this morning, Mark. And how people touched Mark's life. One person touching another person for the glory of God. In Acts chapter 12, that's where we're at this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we go through this text. Let's pray. God, we are completely dependent upon you. Jesus, we want to lift you up this morning. And may your word bring glory to your name and cause us to fall on our knees in faith and dependence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I told you last week, we're going to go through the book of Mark. And so we're going to start that next week. We're still actually going to look at Mark today, or uh, the person Mark today. Someone asked me, how long do you think it's going to take us to go through the book of Mark? I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. We might take a little break in the holiday season, but uh, maybe in through next year. I'm not completely certain. But I told you last week, we're going to look at Mark because of the theme of Mark. 
Mark's theme is that Jesus is the son of God who came as a sacrificial servant. We're going to focus on Jesus and on his gospel. And I I pray that if if there's anyone in here this week or for the next number of weeks, that you will listen to the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, if you've not... Uh, repented and come to faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would do that. But I'm hoping the gospel will really put a fuel in our hearts to, as believers, to go tell the gospel to other people. So we're going to focus on Jesus and his gospel. And I think it's also healthy for our church to just think about the sacrificial life of Jesus and the call that he has upon us to give up our lives for the sake of his gospel and for the sake of Jesus himself. In fact, you heard Brad read that text this morning from Mark chapter 8. that said, you're, gonna, you're supposed to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. And so that's what we're going to focus on as we go through the book of Mark. But I want to just finish the profile of Mark, the person, this morning. I, I told you that Mark wrote the, the gospel of Mark, probably wrote it in the late 50s or early 60s AD in the first century there. And we said that Mark wrote this gospel on behalf of Peter. He was commissioned by Peter to write this gospel. First Peter chapter 5, we saw that, that Peter calls him a son in the faith, which we said that either means that, that Peter discipled him or maybe even led him to the Lord, or maybe he did both of those. And he served alongside of Peter as really a helper in the practical areas. In fact, we said that church tradition tells us that he was the interpreter and assistant of Peter for many years. And again, like I said to you, that he actually was commissioned by Peter to, to write this gospel. And you can imagine Peter getting up daily, preaching, and what's he talking about? Hey guys, listen, let me tell you what happened when I was with Jesus, you know? And if you read through the gospel of Mark, what's amazing to look at is that Peter talks about or I should say this, Mark writes about Peter's failures a lot, doesn't he? I mean, Peter is the big failure in the book of Mark, right? And to think about that, what was Peter's preaching like? Like very humble, right? It was a very humble message that he preached. And so the book of Mark reflects the words, messages, and stories of Peter, the apostle. I'm going to put this down here because I had someone tell me that was probably a good thing. So I'll do that there. And also, we said that he also followed uh, Paul. He actually had a time when he was ministering with Paul alongside of Paul, actually two times. But even later in his life, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says he's very useful for ministry. Paul said in Philemon 24 that actually Mark was one of his fellow workers. So there was a time later in Paul's life when he valued Mark and Mark actually worked alongside of him. And we talked about last week how important it is to have these two aspects, these two types of people, those people who are teaming up together to serve in practical ways and those people who are teaming up together to minister the word and how that teamwork of men and women serving together complements each other and brings glory to God. So just think about this. Consider the end, the conclusion of Mark's life. Mark wrote a book of the Bible. Like, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, no one in here, okay, no one for 2,000 years has actually been able to write any holy scripture. But God used him in that way. Think about this. He was actually the assistant of Peter and of Paul. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not remembering, but I don't know of anyone else that had that privilege. And think about also 
he was able to witness the beginning of the church, the, the explosion of the gospel in that uh, part of time, the first century there. And so he had a lot of privilege and he had a lot of blessings to be able to have God use him in that way. And we can conclude from his life that he was, he gave his life up as a sacrificial servant for the Lord and for the church. And so we read that passage this morning in Mark chapter 8. And you can imagine as Mark is writing this gospel and recording what Peter had told him that Mark is actually thinking a lot about his own life, right? Because Mark actually gave up as well, denied himself, took up his cross, gave up his life, and followed Jesus Christ. And so each one of us are called to follow Christ. And so the question then is, how did Mark become that man? Like, how did he get to the place where he actually was very useful to the Lord for ministry, and God used him in an amazing way? Think about the millions of people who have read his gospel and have come to know Jesus Christ. Like, he had an amazing ministry. So how did he get to a place where he was able to deny himself, and God was able to use him in a great way, and he was able to follow Jesus? And so we're going to look at, this morning, the influences upon Mark's life that led him to be and molded him to be a sacrificial servant. And there were three influences that shaped Mark into a sacrificial servant. So first of all, Mark witnessed examples of sacrificial service. So look down in Acts chapter number 12. The first time we see the name Mark or John Mark, which is, was his full name. John was his Jewish name. Mark was his Greek name is here in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is about 14 years after Christ died and rose again. So the year is around the year 44 AD. Mark would have been in his late 20s or maybe early 30s. So he would have been a teenager when Christ died and rose again. And then so this is about 14 years later here. So he's, he's kind of a young man with his life in front of him. Look down in Acts chapter 12 verse 1. It says, about that time, and this time in history, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So this is not a new thing for the church, right? Saul, before he was converted, he would go into homes, rip out men and women out of their homes and put them in prison. But now Saul has been saved and Herod is in on the action. So Satan always has his way to keep pressure on the church there and persecute. And in verse number two, we see that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so here's Herod, a wicked man, kind of crazy. He likes violence. He likes death. And then he realizes that people like that too. At least the Jewish leaders did because they were, he was able to kill one of the apostles. And so he thought, well, why not get another one? So he puts Peter in prison with the idea that he's going to bring him out and have him executed. In verse number four, the Bible says, and when they had seized him, when he, when he, that is Herod, had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Why? To kill him, right? So this is serious. The apostles are, are going to start being killed off by Herod here, right? That's what the intention is. And so what does the church do? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, this was happening in 
Jerusalem. But notice what it says right there. It says, by the church. What is that? Like, that's God's people. Those are God's people there in Jerusalem. We're going to notice in this passage where this group of people gathered. Let's keep going on in verse number six. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter is about to die. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. Now, how many of you are facing a serious difficulty and you just sleep through the night? right? There's faith in God right there. He had faith in the Lord and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. And he struck Peter. That is the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, and he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. So he thought this was a dream or vision. But, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, and he realized, oh, this isn't a dream. This is for real. He said... Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. He's like, I'm not going to die. Now, why is it that this happened? Like, why did he get freed from prison, from jail there by an angel? Why? Because God's people gathered together to do what? To pray, to pray. The church. Now, let me just pause here because this actually isn't part of my message, but I was studying this and I was looking at this and I thought, you know what? This is a great thing for us to pause and reflect upon. God works through prayer, right? The church, well, believed it, not always believe in it because we're going to see later on in the passage, they're surprised when Peter's there. It's like, oh, it actually worked, that God actually worked through prayer, you know? But God works through prayer, right? Like if we want to really reach the city for Christ, what must we do? We have to pray. If we, if we want to see this church reach its potential to be able to, to minister to each other and to other people, what must we do? We must pray. I was looking at the bulletin and noticed that our finances are down a little bit. And you look at that and what is it easy to do? It's easy to say, well, what are we going to do? What, what, let's do this gimmick. Let's do this and that. But actually, what should we do? Pray. I was reading this summer a biography uh, about Hudson Taylor. And I shared a story with you last week. So that's where some of this comes from. He was standing in a church like this. There was hundreds more people. And he was presenting his ministry. And, and at the very end of it, he went and sat down. And uh, one of the men in the church who was a deacon got up. And he was going to finish in prayer. He said, I think we should do this. Let's take an offering for Hudson Taylor and for his ministry. And, and let's give. And Hudson Taylor sat up and said, no, actually, no, no. Actually, I don't do that. Uh, I just trust the Lord and we're not going to do that. If you want to give, you can, you know, pray to the Lord about it. And this deacon was greatly offended. This deacon went home and actually Hudson Taylor was staying in this man's home. And so they, they were sitting down together and he was a prominent man, man in the community, a man of means. And he said, Hudson Taylor, you could have received a lot of money today. You know, you could have had your whole, 
organization funded today? Why didn't you, why didn't you allow that to happen? He says, you know what? Because I really believe, like I said in my message, that if God's going to provide, you must pray. And so he said to this man, he said to this deacon, Hudson Taylor said, why don't you do this? Before you go to bed tonight, pray that God will provide for me. The next morning, they came down to breakfast, and Hudson Taylor was sitting down eating breakfast, and this man sat down with Hudson Taylor, and he said, uh, Hudson, I've been bothered all night long. I've prayed, and, and I prayed some more. And the more I prayed, the more the Lord convinced me to give. And he said, I've decided to give you, and he told him the amount, and it was a large amount of money. And he said, probably I would have just thrown a couple pence in the offering if I would have done it last night. And Hudson Taylor saw his ministry fully funded, not by begging people, but by prayer. And if we want to spiritually grow, what must we do? We must pray. And so let me just encourage us as a church, individually and corporately and in groups, we must be praying together. This passage makes it clear that prayer works. It's not magical. It's crying out to God and saying, God, you own it all. Please, God, provide. Do what you promise. So they gather to pray. And where do they pray? Look at verse 12. It says, when he, that is Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Now, there in the scriptures are so many Marys. Right? It's like every lady's name in the New Testament is named Mary. It seems like it. Okay. So which Mary is this? Well, they tell us right there. Luke, the historian here, writes that it was the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So there's our gospel writer, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Mark's mom was where all the believers, or where the believers in Jerusalem were gathering to pray. I want you to notice a few things about Mark, his home, and his experience. First of all, this passage makes no reference, and nowhere else in the scripture, scriptures is there a reference to his father which likely means that his mother was widowed. Second, notice the church is, um, that includes a lot of people, right, are gathered in their home, which means they probably had a large house, right? In fact, actually, it was a second-story home, so there was an area for them to gather, so that probably meant she was a woman of means. And also notice when Peter comes to knock on the door, who answers? Look at number thir- verse 13. It says, when he knocked, at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to the door. So there, was, there were servants in the home, right? And the rest of the story is that they didn't believe Peter was really there, right? Finally, the servant girl let Peter in, and the church rejoices that they, God answered the prayer of the saints. And then Peter went on his way. But notice just some of the uh, details there about Mark and his family. And think about this, is that we don't know for certain if Mark was there that night. But the, the idea is that this was Mark's house. This is where the believers would gather to pray. And to meet. So Mark grew up as a pretty privileged kid, if you want to say it that way, right? Materially and spiritually. I mean, he lives in a big house. He's pretty comfortable. There's a second story uh, room where they meet. And they have, it's actually called a cataluma. It's the idea that's the gathering place for a family. In fact, if you go to the Reagan Library, I think there's the Pompeii exhibit. And I don't know if they have it at this exhibit, but... Sometimes at these, uh, the Pompeii exhibits, they'll have a, leave pictures or sometimes even a layout of um, catalumas. And the idea is that's the area where people in that, the first century were gathering, okay? And so some of these large rooms like that. So that's kind of the kind of room they would have gathered in. And his family had servants, which means Mark was not picking up his own clothes. 
right? Well, maybe he was, but, right? I mean, he wasn't washing his own clothes, right? I mean, he had someone that was taking care of those needs. So he had a pretty, pretty privileged life from a worldly perspective, but also spiritually he was privileged. His mom was a believer. Like, that's a great privilege. If you grew up or if you are growing up in a Christian home, thank God for that, right? And thank God for the, the privilege that he's given to you, the grace to grow up in that kind of environment. But she just wasn't any Christian. Here was a woman who said, here's my home. Come on in, right, to the church in the middle of the night. Now, how many of you would love for all of us in here to come to your home tonight? How about right now, and we just stay there, and we just pray all the way to 2 o'clock in the morning? Wouldn't that sound like a lot of fun? Any volunteers? Okay, don't, no, no, that's, well, I probably shouldn't go into that right now. But you think about it. The first significant influence upon Mark was that his mother modeled sacrificial service, right? In Acts chapter 12, they're, they're praying together at night in her home. I mean, hospitality is difficult, right? Hospitality actually takes sacrifice. And I'm not comparing it to the sacrifice of, of people, believers like in China or some of these other restricted access nations when they're actually having people taken out of their home and taken to intern camps or having their churches destroyed. But there's an element of sacrifice in this right here, right? Uh, at Calvary Baptist in Simpsonville where uh, I was a pastor for a number of years, I started community groups, which basically were uh, groups of people that would meet in homes to pray and discuss God's word and then to just fellowship together. So I would go around and ask people, hey, would you be interested in, in maybe a couple times in the year opening your home for something like this? And I, I heard a lot of different responses. Let me first say that, that this is not normal for Americans, right? I mean, maybe at one time we were more hospitable where, you know, everyone was out in their front porch and was like, hey, come on in, you know, neighbors. But now we all go in our garages, close the doors, and we don't even see our neighbors, right? So it's kind of odd, even within the church, for some people to even have someone in their house. And I heard people say, well, our house is a little too nice. I don't know if, like, it's kid-friendly, you know. And I've heard, and then some people say, well, our house is kind of messy. You know, I don't know if people would really want to be in our house. And some people would say, uh, some people were embarrassed because maybe their house was too big. That's, that's interesting. And I actually had some people that were obviously on the other end, uh, felt like it wasn't nice enough. And, uh, and we had one in our house. We had a group that would meet once in a while, our community group. And, you know, it is difficult. I remember this, this bigger boy. We had this family. We loved this family, okay? But they had, a, they had a bigger boy that was probably growing faster. His body's growing faster than his mind. You know what I'm talking about? And so he doesn't realize he smells sometimes. So he comes into the house, and he takes his shoes off without any socks on. And, you know, we're all gathering around. And he plops in the middle down there and, you know, spreads out on the floor like that. And his feet come up against a pillow that I like to actually put my head on sometimes. And I'm looking at, and then I start smelling the feet. Like it's wafting my way into my nostrils. My eyes are watering. It's a hot, humid day in South Carolina. And my air conditioner is not keeping up. So we're actually, I don't remember even what happened. We had to open the windows or something for some reason. So everyone in us in there is going like, kind of like this, right? And I had to kindly ask his mom, do you think he can wear socks next time? Like bring some. It just like, that's that, what, that's what happens. Like it's a, that's, you know, it, Wipe, wipe the pillow off afterwards, you know? It's kind of sometimes late at night, and I'm thinking, I'm going to meet someone for coffee at 5.30 in the morning, and people are still at my house, right? Or af afterwards, you're cleaning for at least 20 to 30 minutes or rearranging furniture. But the point is, it's sacrifice, right? But also, it's a huge blessing to have people in your home. I, I, can, I can remember seeing the, the lady, the widowed lady that was not able to have any uh, really fellowship during the week just because of what was going on in her life and because she didn't really have 
people were coming over to visit her, but she would come to this, and she'd have all the children around her. Like, that was a blessing to see that. I can remember having a couple who had their children already grown with the other couple whose children were small and giving advice to them. And I could remember the, the conservative theological professor, the retired conservative theological professor, sitting down with a grungy teenager, having a good conversation about the Lord. And the point is, what's happening? You're sharing life together. And that's what's happening here. These people are all in her home, but Mary is sacrificing, in some sense, her comfort and really, ultimately, even the potential that they could come to her house and arrest her. I mean, she's, she's hosting the church, the persecuted church. It's not just a good idea to show hospitality, but actually, it's commanded, isn't it? So 1 Peter chapter number 4, verse 9, Peter says, Show hospitality, talking about the church, to one another without grumbling. That last part's the hard part, <laughs> right? Without grumbling, right? It's like everyone goes home. Uh, that's the time we got. Remember, we showed hospitality now without grumbling, right? Because we are rejoicing in this. I wonder, when Peter wrote that, you got to wonder, did he think in his mind, ah, oh, show hospitality like Mark's mom did in Jerusalem there. So Mark's mother served by giving up her home. And he also saw other people uh, sacrificially serve. Of course, he was able to be around the apostles. But also, it's likely that Mark knew Jesus or knew of Jesus. Now, what I'm about to tell you is there's circumstantial evidence for, okay? The scripture is not clear that this is the case, but there's circumstantial evidence that actually Peter was, or Mark knew Jesus and even was able to maybe talk to Jesus. And so, uh, so we're going to see that. If you want to go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. And so he was able to be around the apostles and possibly even around Jesus. Let me just, let me say something real quick that I was going to mention earlier. And just speaking about Mary and her example. And I want to just address us as if you have, if you're a parent in here or if you're a grandparent, right? Even grandparents, grandparents day. So it's included grandparents. And first and foremost, children, they know who we are, don't they? They know who we are behind closed doors. And children will make their judgment about Christ and about Christianity, not just based upon what you say, but how you live, right? Let me say that again. They will make a judgment many times uh, about Jesus and about Christianity based upon your character. Not just what you say, but how you live. And ultimately, kids will not just follow what you say about how you live. If what you say is inconsistent with how you live, then it's likely your children will reject what you say as well. So it's important for us to remember that. And so if we live lives in our homes as hypocrites, how do we expect our children to grow up to be, to live? And if our lives are about our jobs, making money, going on vacations, entertainment, entertainment, then what do you think we are teaching our children to value as well? And one thing I, I just think about Mary, I think about the fact Mary's, uh, Mary, the, the mother of Mark, is that she modeled what it was like to be a sacrificial servant. And you got to think that affected him throughout the rest of his life. And parents, we are the number one model of Christ for our kids. 
the number one model. They're the ones we see every day. I mean, you, whether you like it or not, as a parent or even a grandparent, you are teaching your children, right? We should be instructing our children with daily devotions, family devotions, scripture memory, things like that. That's so important. But listen, your actions actually speak and teach as well, right? Whether you like it or not, whether for the good or for the bad. And as a church, we want to help you and equip you. I, I, I believe that the church is the pillar and ground of truth, truth, not the home, right? So we as a church are to take the truth, to preach it, equip, proclaim, and help you as, as parents and grandparents and other believers in here to be able to do the same to other people. So that's our role as a church. And so we have different you know, Sunday classes and Sunday schools, and we're going to have a children's program and youth program and things like that to help to equip both parents and children with the truth. But in the home, you are discipling your kids, not just with your words, but with your life. So, so important for us to remember that our lives speak. And that's what Mary was doing as a parent. And so Mark chapter 14, look at verse 51 The Bible says, a young man followed him, that's Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, the young man, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, this has got to be an embarrassing story. It's anonymous. I don't think that's the reason why, but who knows? I mean, it's like, Mark, what's your embarrassing story? Well, Mark 14, 51. Well, there was no page number. There was no uh, chapters and verses back then. But if there were, go look it up. That's my most embarrassing story, right? Running through Jerusalem. But the idea is that this potentially could be Mark. Now you ask why, okay? Well, we know that Mary, the mother of John Mark, used her home as a gathering place for Christians. We see that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Most uh, commentators believe that actually Acts chapter 1, that's where they gathered as well in the upper room. Both of them are upper rooms where they're gathering with the church. So, in fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually go to a place that people say is the historical place that that Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark's house was and where Jesus had his last supper. And so they actually say that not only did the church gather in there in Acts, but also that's where the disciples gathered before Jesus was, uh, was crucified and then rose again. In fact, it's interesting. You go to this place. Um, I almost showed a picture of it, but it's actually rebuilt. So it's not even really what it looks like. So I thought, I don't want to put a picture in your head of what it actually might look like, what people think it might look like, because that's not what it really looked like. But if you go there, there's a tomb of, of David, which he's not even there. But the idea is that they have a synagogue there. And then there's a mosque there. <laughs> then the Christians have their holy site there too. It's, it's so, so Jerusalem, you know, to have three different you know, religions in one place right there. But the idea is even historically, that is what church tradition tells us, that this was the place. There was a place where, where Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark, um, had Jesus even come for his last supper. So there in the garden, Judas betrays Jesus, and there's a young man with them, and he, he's, all he has on is a linen cloth, okay, which is kind of strange to have, okay? So who is this young man? Well, we, like I said earlier, church tradition, in fact, Daniel Atkin, a conservative commentator, kind of lists some of this for us, but I'm not going to do that. But he says, church tradition tells us that it was Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark. So, so why did he do it anonymously? Well, you know, if you remember John, um, the writer of uh, the book of John, the gospel of John, he did the same thing, right? He referred to himself as the beloved disciple. 
the one whom Jesus loved. And so he referred to himself in the third person. So some people believe that that's what Mark is doing here as well. He's referring to himself in the third person and not actually saying his name. And Mark would have been about this age, a young man. He'd been a teenager at the time. So that age kind of fits him. This is actually the only gospel that includes this account. Also, think about this. He was wrapped in a linen cloth. Linen was pretty expensive back then, right? And so the only type of person that would have linen are those who are wealthy. So that matches Mark as well. Also, Mark is seemingly to be with the disciples because the soldiers come and try to seize him as well. So what young man with a linen cloth is going to be with the disciples? And some people hypothesize as well that maybe... Uh, they had the Last Supper there at, at Mark's house, and he was sleeping or pretending to be sleeping. You kids know what I'm talking about. And he was sleeping with only in a linen cloth because, you know, it was their pajamas maybe back then. And then when the disciples left, he followed them with follow the disciples and followed Jesus as well. So just think about that. In fact, go to Mark chapter 14, verse 13. And you can see there is a young man who's carrying water. And some people even hypothesize that this could have been Mark as well. And uh, a, a man would not have been carrying water back then. So Jesus says, you know, go find this man. And so that would have been a good sign because there's not men doing that in Jerusalem. But a young man, a teenage young man, could be doing it for his mother there. Some even think that could possibly be him. But I say all that so that you understand. Just think about his life and his experience. Like he witnessed, potentially he witnessed Jesus. I mean, could it be that he was looking in and seeing Jesus wash the disciples' feet and thinking, why is someone doing that, right? And definitely Jesus was able, or Mark was able to see the place where Jesus died and potentially even from a distance could have even have seen that. But the idea is that there were people who influenced him as examples of sacrificial service. And, and I would say it's so important for us and here as believers to look in the scriptures, but also to look around us and say, who are some people that, that can invest in my life, that can mentor me, especially if you're a young person in here, say, who's someone that I can sit down for coffee and pick their brain? Like, think, okay, how can I, how can I become a better a disciple of Christ? How can I sacrifice? Like, how can I actually be somewhat like this person? And it's good for us to have those kind of people in our life. And Mark had that, and it definitely influenced him in the right direction. And secondly... Another influence upon Mark was the grace of God. God's grace changed him from being a self-centered, comfortable, rich kid with a silver spoon in his mouth, right? To being a, a man who sacrificially served Jesus. In fact, where do we see this? Look down in Acts chapter 12. Again, persecution was heavy upon the church, but God was at work. The word of God was spreading. And the last part of Acts here... Acts 12 and beyond now is talking about basically Saul, who is also called Paul in his ministry. So the first part of Acts kind of about Peter. Now we're going to go into Paul and Saul and talk about that. And there's a man who is named Barnabas, who actually goes to Tarshish to find Saul, who had just become a believer. Well, uh, before that, he'd become a believer and bring him to the apostles to present him before the apostles and say, listen, this is Saul. He's very gifted. They were all scared of him because they're like, oh, he's just pretending <laughs> he's going to actually come and kill us all. But no, he said, no, no, I'm Barnabas. I, I believe in this guy. And this guy is a guy who I think God can use in a great way. So they kind of became a team, Barnabas and Saul. Interestingly, actually, Barnabas was also the relative of Mark. So whether he was his uncle or maybe he was his cousin, not really certain, but there was some relation. Barnabas was from uh, Cyprus. 
And he was also a Levite. So interesting, that could have been then that, that Mark's family was Levitical as well. And actually, he was an example that God gave of a person who gave up so much and followed Christ. I mean, the Bible says of Barnabas, or in Acts chapter 9, that he actually sold, uh, Acts chapter 4, he actually sold his possessions and gave it to the church, right? So here's another example of a sacrificial life. And so this is Barnabas. And Saul and Barnabas are now a team, and they're going to be sent out by the church in Antioch to go on a missionary journey. So we find ourselves in Acts chapter 12. Look at verse 24. It says, The word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John. So there's our man, John, whose other name was Mark. So it's, it's uh, Paul, Saul, Paul and Barnabas, and then a helper that comes with them, John, Mark. So they began to go plant churches in verse number two of chapter 13. So chapter 13, verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting at the church there in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed to Cyprus. So here, Saul and Barnabas and Mark sail to the island of Cyprus. So think about that. That's actually a very familiar place to Barnabas, but also maybe even to Mark. Maybe Mark went and visited relatives there. We don't know. But he would have been pretty comfortable there, just put it that way, right? Because there's people there. He probably knew. Barnabas definitely knew people there. Look down in verse 13. This is now Paul and his companions set sail from Pappas and came to Perga, in Pamphylia, and John, so that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So what happened here? What happened to John Mark? He quit, right? He quit. He left the mission trip, if you want to say it that way, in the middle of the mission trip. So why? Well, we don't exactly know. Let me give some options of here's some potential uh, things that happened. First of all, we do know this, that Paul was upset about it. In fact, let me do this first. Let me read Acts chapter 15. So go over to Acts 15. This is the second missionary journey. See the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas and Mark. Mark quits. Now Paul and Barnabas are going to go on a second missionary journey. In Acts 15 verse 36, the Bible says, And after some days, Paul and Barnabas, or Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. So there's the idea that he quit and Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So there you go. Separation right there. But that's not the best separation, is it? Not good. But Barnabas wanted Mark to come. Paul did not. So definitely Paul thought it was serious enough that he did not want Mark with him at all. So, so it could be that Mark just quit. You know, it could be that Mark said, I miss home, right? And so when, it, when, they, when they sailed from Cyprus, it was kind of like, oh, I'm familiar with that place. I'm familiar with Jerusalem. And, and I'm kind of familiar with comfort. I don't really like this. So it could be on the missions field. He was, didn't like the, 
the difficulties of the mission field, so he decided to leave. Maybe he was just immature, right? Maybe he just did some immature things, and Paul was like, You're, I'm fed up with you. And he's like, well, good, I'm going to leave, right? Or it could be he actually had a legitimate disagreement with Paul and decided to say, I'm going to protest, and I'm going to leave and go back home. But no matter what happened, it caused a problem so much that Paul did not want him on the next, next trip. So how did Mark come from being rejected by Paul to 20 years later, now he's beloved by Paul? I mean, how did he go from being the, the missionary reject to say, go home, we're not going to have you anymore, to then, years later, actually God used him in a great way? Like, how did that happen? Well, it was grace, right? It was grace. Like, God's grace worked in Mark's life. It changed him. And Barnabas must have seen that. In fact, you don't have to go there, but in Acts chapter 11, uh, the scriptures record for us the, the testimony of Barnabas and just his character. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In verse 22 of Acts 11, it says that he saw the grace of God at work. And so Barnabas, he knows God's grace can change people, right? He's full of the Holy Spirit. He knows the Holy Spirit is the one that changes people by the grace of God. And so here's Barnabas, a man controlled by the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit, and knows the Spirit is the one who changes people. And so Barnabas pursues Mark and says, this guy is either being changed, has been changed, or can be changed by God's grace. And he looked at Mark and he saw something in him and said, I know that God can use him. Paul disagreed. Paul said so much that, I'm, nope, I'm done. Paul didn't see the potential there for whatever reason. But Barnabas did. And it was like, no, Mark, you're done for. And Barnabas was like, no, I think God can still use him. And what was it that changed Mark? What was it that changed Peter from being the guy in Mark, the book of Mark, that is, that is the reject? You know, he's kind, of the whole, he's kind of the one that keeps failing over and over in the book of Mark, right? To being a great preacher of the gospel. What, what changed Paul from being the church persecutor to the apostle Paul. The same thing that changed Mark. It's the grace of God, the grace of God. In fact, I think it's really interesting, as I said at the very beginning, to think about Mark, the gospel of Mark, that is, and how he wrote about Peter and his failings and then how God restored him. It's interesting to think about that's the exact same type of story that happened to Mark and God restored him. Peter encouraged the churches in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace, in knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God never expects you to be perfect. Can you, can you hear that? God does not expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be growing in grace. Sometimes people get this idea that it's like, you know, God's expecting this, and if I don't do this, then God's going to hate me, and he's going to... If you're a child of God, he doesn't expect you to be perfect. He expects you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last night, I was helping Dana put up curtains, and I had my drill, and I went, and I put a little hole in the wall, <clears throat> and I went, oops. And then I had another time when I screwed it in the wrong place, oops, and she comes in and says, what's the oops? What's the oops? I said, Dana, and I was thinking about this because I was thinking about what I was going to say the next day. I was like, God never expects it to be perfect, but it's growing grace. 
So there you go. You guys can use that. No, no, don't use it in that way. And don't use that when you're hanging curtains for your wife. But the idea there is that, that, that Mark grew in grace, right? God gave him much grace. Grace is God's undeserved loving work in us and for us that changes us. It's God's undeserved loving work in us and for us that changes us. And the only way that Mark went from being the self-centered rich kid to the guy who said, I'm going to leave it all and go back to the mission field was because God's grace was at work in his life. So what influences shape sacrificial servants? The last one, quickly, is a disciple who encourages others to sacrificially serve. A disciple who encourages others to sacrificially serve. What made the difference in Mark's life? There was a man who came alongside of Mark, put his arm around him, invited him back into the joyful service of the Lord. There was a man who influenced him, who one life touched another life for the glory of God. You might say it this way. When, when other people saw all the, the programs and all the, the other extra things in the church, Barnabas saw a person. And Barnabas knew this. Ministry is about people. And of course, Mark was a person that God could use. The word Barnabas actually means encouragement. It was a name given to him because he was an encouraging person, which means that he would come alongside of people. And so aren't you thankful for a guy like Barnabas? I mean, think about it. If you don't have Barnabas, do you have the gospel of Mark? Like if you don't have Barnabas, do you have a Saul? Right? He went, Barnabas went to Tarshish and got Saul. Like would you have had a Saul? If you don't have Barnabas, then you don't have an assistant to Peter and to Paul. And there are countless Men and women and young people and pastors and missionaries and church leaders and deacons and believers that need people to come alongside them and say, how can I pray for you? Encouraging them. In fact, I I heard a story of a missionary. He was giving his testimony. He said one of the greatest blessings that he has in the mission field is he has a man every month who emails him. And asks him, how can I pray for you? And this man, he'll, you know, he'll, the missionary will send the email back and say, this is how you can pray. This man will email him every week and tell him, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for this. And then this man would randomly just call him up. And it wasn't one of those, so tell me all the problems in the mission field. It was, hey, just real quickly, don't want to take much of your time. As much time as you want. I just want to pray with you. And he did. And he said it was one of the most encouraging things. And there were times when he said, I'm going to quit off i'm done here and this guy would call it was like just the perfect time and be like stick in there man i'm praying for you let's pray right now it was such an encouragement and so many people need that look around you there are men and women in here who need to be you to be a barnabas to them there's some in here who are lonely some of you are going through some very difficult times sometimes it's just life is tiring right you just need that encouragement. So why did Mark become the man he became? Well, he he had examples around him. 
So, so we need to be examples, and not just for the sake of being an example, but we need to remember that our life means something to other people, right? And we can influence people for the glory of God. But also, God's grace changed him. So maybe you're in here, and maybe you've had some failures, maybe you've had some struggles. Listen, God can change you by his grace and restore you. And he also had someone who saw potential in him. And, and maybe you can keep your eyes Peel this week, maybe even this morning, and say, who is someone that has potential in here that I can influence for the glory of God? Let's finish with this last passage here, and it's the same one that Brad read earlier. As we finish, what I want us to think about is this, that God has called us to sacrifice our life for him. All these things I talked about this morning, hospitality, giving, all those things. Are, are, are ways for us to say, God, this is not my life. Like, Jesus, I give my life to you and follow you. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I think it's the last slide we have up there. Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, right? Deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's lose our lives for Jesus. Let's sacrificially serve other people. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks directly to us. Your spirit helps us to apply it in so practical ways. So many practical ways we can think about how we can go from here. But I pray for those believers in this room, part of this body of lighthouse, may they take one thing this morning. And God, may you take that one thing and in their hearts, and God, by your grace, will you help them to go out and live by faith and do it. And God, I pray for anyone in here who is hearing the word and realizes they're far from you. Draw them back to yourself. May they come back to you and see the beauty of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.